A very good evening to all our viewers, and this is your host, Vans here. That's right, today's Wednesday, and that's right, today we push it to 10 p.m. late night shows with Vans. Uh, yes, we are live at uh, YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and uh, you can also catch us uh, at uh, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So we are in a very great discussion, or today a great topic today, uh, of course, with uh, one of my very great um speaker and doctor, a psychiatrist as well, is going to jump in very, very shortly. And today's topic is all about an open discussion about suicide. So if you do have any questions to Dr. Jarrod and my guest speaker, please send them in. Or if you think that, you know, if there's a pertaining uh, a question that you want to uh, send very discreetly yes you may do so also because we are able to do that through our whatsapp message but let me just dive in a little bit of what is the stats in singapore recently at the singapore mental health conference on just a few i think one two weeks or three weeks back a health minister ong Eng khan has said the government will start incorporating a mental health element in healthier sg yes we have given a lot of priority to mental health it's a preventive care strategy in age well sg it's a national effort to encourage active and healthy aging in homes and communities so mental health is definitely indeed a very important element but before that let me just um, do a very brief uh, introduction about my guest speaker dr jared Ng is an experienced psychiatrist and an expert in suicide prevention he holds an esteemed degrees from national university of singapore and harvard university Dr. Ng is the founder and medical director of Connections Mind Health, where he focuses on child and adolescents, adult and corporate mental health needs. His career spans roles as military psychiatrist and as a founding chief of Department of Emergency Crisis Care at the University of Mental Health, Singapore. Complementing his profession, professional work, Dr. Ng is a very active volunteer and educator, a very holistic approach to mental health pain. So without any... Board. So let's bring Dr. Jared. Hello, Dr. Jared. Yep. Hello. Hi. Hi, Vance. Thanks How are you, sir? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you Thank for you. joining me at uh, Copy with Vance today. I know you you did have a very busy schedule today, but thank you so much for joining in this podcast, Doctor. Yeah, yeah, no problem. It's a pleasure to be here. Doctor, of course, I did a brief introduction about yourself, but uh, do you also want to do a quick introduction about yourself, um, what you do and what makes you become a psychiatrist so that we will know you a little bit more before we dive into the today's topic? Uh, yeah, I mean, I was always interested in mental health. I think this started when I was in junior college. And actually, one of my teachers was asked us to do a project on, on a famous person. Right. And for some strange reason, I chose Sigmund Freud. You know, he's like the father of psychiatry. Yes, Sigmund Freud. Yeah, and I think my teacher found out that I was interested. So she actually got me to speak to some of her friends who were mental health right. professionals. And, and I did. And to cut a long story short, uh, a few years ago, I was doing, giving a talk to educators right. about the importance of education. And my teacher was in the audience. Okay. And I was uh, giving a mental health talk. And she's now a principal. Uh, and I thought it was such a full circle story. And of course, she right. didn't remember me, but I went to introduce myself and she remembered me. And I told her that she got me started on this path to be a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. so that's where I am today. Thank you, doctor. So, yeah, you are. Um, doctor, before we, again, um, before we diving into this topic itself, um, apparently, I mean, it, it seems like a very uh, taboo topic to talk about, uh, especially in Singapore, especially when it comes to... Um, suicidals and kind of stuff. Um, how, where are we right now and why is it still a taboo topic or is it now um, being addressed? I believe as with other aspects of mental health, um, I think the level of stigma is less, but I think you can understand why people may not want to talk about suicide. Families who go through uh, this, they would rather grieve privately. They may not want to talk so much about it. And sometimes there is a concern that people will view them differently if they know that there was a suicide in the household. Um, I think this is a difficult part. We know that uh, many patients who attempt suicide or take their own life, they may also suffer from uh, a mental illness like depression or something more serious like schizophrenia. And if you think about it, this is almost like a double stigmatization. 
not only do they have a mental illness, which is a stigma in society, uh, but there's also that stigma of suicide attempts. And it becomes even more difficult to talk about it mm-hmm. as well. But I'm glad that that has changed. I must say that I, I think the government, uh, the community agencies have done a really good job. For example, I think recently there was a Beyond the Beyond the Label campaign. Right. This has been ongoing for some time. I think all this has been really helpful in increasing mental health literacy and reducing stigma, encouraging people to come forward for help. I think this is really crucial. Yeah. And, and also, Doctor, I mean, our Minister of Health, uh, Ong Yi Khan, has said that the um, mental health element in LTSG, because uh, previously they were talking about a lot of, you know, you know, eat lesser salt, you know, diabetes yes. in the rice, but now mental health has been in the LTSG. So there's a lot of importance that's given into mental health, you know, not just physical health, or, you know, just looking, but also from, from top to bottom, right? Yeah, that's right. In fact, I, I was giving a talk this afternoon. That was one reason why I was a little bit busy. Right. And I think one of the things we that I spoke to the audience about is that there's no health without mental health. If you think about it, so what if you're physically healthy, if you do not have uh, good mental health to enjoy that physical health? Right. Uh, the difficulty with that is that sometimes mental health, uh, there is no external symptom. And if I ask somebody to talk about, do you have good mental health? It becomes quite difficult to answer if I ask you that right. question. If I ask somebody, do you have good physical health? I think you may still say that I have good blood pressure, my glucose is under control. Maybe right. the man will tell me about the IPPT scores, you know. There's there's different ways to categorize good health, good physical health, but mental health is difficult because we all go right. through tough times as well, and our reaction is different to it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and and also, doctor, is it you know you know I, I was having a, gr- a great discussion earlier as well with a, one of the psychologists, um, and and the discussion went in a, in a little bit more deeper. Uh, you know, seeking help seems to be a weakness, uh, but but I think it has changed. People are now seeking more help, and I think mm-hmm. seeking help is a, a sign of a strength rather than yes. a weakness. And also, um, when someone sees a psychologist or psychiatrist, you know, they've been labeled. Is it one of the reasons why people are worried? Uh, that you know they can be labeled and that's one of the reasons why um that seeking help seems to be a weakness what is your take on this doctor i think it comes from a time where perhaps people attribute uh, mental health conditions or even things like depression anxiety to perhaps a lack of willpower a lack of personal strength uh, they may have this mindset of how come you can't take it this is just a small problem P- people may have this mindset and therefore, coming forward to say that I'm depressed uh, may give, they think that it gives the impression that they are weak, they can't cope with uh, the stress, and therefore they need help. But I'm glad that is changing. I think it has to, it has been accompanied because we recognize that mental condition like depression and anxiety are really a medical issue as well that needs to be treated. Just as we don't, you see, we, we don't look down on people with diabetes. We don't look down on people with heart nope. pressure. So in the same breath, why should we think any different of someone with depression or anxiety? So I'm glad that has changed as well. And with more people coming forward, I think it turns the wheel much faster. Uh, then you see your friends seeking help. And if you encounter difficulties yourself, you might be also more willing to seek help. Yeah. Well said that, Doctor. Thank you so much. And recently, Doctor, SOS uh, recently reported there are 476 suicides in 2020. And this is the highest in more than 20 years. Has there been any trends you have noticed? Um, I think the number of suicides in Singapore has been actually quite consistent at about 400. If you look at the suicide numbers for the last maybe 10 to 10 to 15 years, you find that they always hover around 400. But last year, the number of suicides was astoundingly 476. And like you mentioned at the STEM, yeah. it is really the highest we have noted ever since we started capturing data. I think what made this even more market is that the year before, in 2021, we had a very low number of suicides. And that was pretty surprising because I think most people expected that with the COVID pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, the number of suicides would be... Uh, much higher, but it was on, it was three hundred and seventy something, if I'm not wrong, three hundred seventy eight, right. if I'm not wrong, and therefore four hundred and seventy six actually represents almost a hundred 
more people who uh, decided to take their life that year. Mm-hmm. I think the other trends which I felt was, um, it wasn't a surprise, but I think the number of male suicide still outnumbers the female almost by two is to one. More men mm-hmm. are taking their life. Um, the other trend which I noticed is that there is still a very high number of young suicides. When I say young suicides, it actually is the age of 19 and below. Uh, there was about 30-something. If I'm not wrong, it's about 34. And if you go back to maybe 10 years ago in 2014, mm-hmm. we have 13. Imagine this is a tripling of numbers since about 10 years ago. Right. Um, I think there were a few publications about this in the press, local press. If you look at it, actually the number of elderly suicide also went up compared okay. to the year before. And young people, when I say young, I mean 49 and below. I'm glad that I'm still young. Uh, makes up almost more than half of the suicides. And right. this is really a concern. Yeah. yeah. Right. And then, uh, Doctor, also looking at these numbers itself, I mean, of course, um, yes. so probably, you know, um, we, we are adding, I mean, our, our lifestyle. Uh, you know, we are in a fast-moving world, right? You, everybody just want to catch up earlier. Even in corporate setting, uh, people yes. are falling into burnout very quickly. You know, if you look at their eyes, Sign and symptoms, I may say, may be wrong. But uh, if you look at them, they are very exhausted, you know, working too long, you know, too long hours for the promotion and staying back seven days a week. This can actually lead to the, I mean, few of these sign and symptoms like anxiety, burnout. So are we really bringing this upon to ourselves and not more kind or more loving to ourselves? Is that can be a contributor as well, doctor? I think social pressure, pressure at the workplace, pressure in school certainly is a contributor. Um, perhaps the lack of connectedness is also important. Um, I've spoken about this on some other forum, but I was always wondering the role that social media plays. Yeah. Uh, you, A person may have a lot of friends, but I'm not sure how connected it is. Uh, the people who follow you on your social media feeds, are they people that you can count on when you're in a crisis? It's really quite different. If you think about it, when I was young, my my counterpart would be schoolmates, would be people living in the same neighborhood. We go to the playground downstairs and play together. Yeah. There is that personal connection. And if I was in any form of trouble, it's quite easy to reach out. But right now, you may have a thousand friends, a thousand followers. Right. Can you reach out to them? I'm not so sure about that. I think there is still an importance of that connection between human beings that is probably more than just a virtual connection. I think that's one reason. I think we have to face it. We can't run away from societal stress. It's not as though Singapore can decide to shut down and we don't have the paper chase or the rat race anymore and we we just go back to a more relaxed and senang and chill lifestyle. We can't do that. We have to remain competitive. We have to remain... Uh, at the cutting edge to really do well now for ourselves and, and, and really for the family, for the country. So we have to learn to adapt to it. I think what you mentioned earlier is really important. I think the, the, the fact that we cannot neglect things like compassion and kindness and understanding, and these are qualities which you realize is really quite difficult to teach as a subject. Mm-hmm. You can't. It's, it's really up to the community, up to family, and perhaps... Uh, something that is not so academically driven in the school. Right. These are things which uh, we need to do la, as a society. We, we can't just blame the advancement, blame competition, and then try to do something about that because we can't, we, we can't turn back that clock. But what we can do is to imbue kindness and understanding and compassion. You know, Doctor, I think you you nailed it, right? Because, um, you know, when, you know, like a badminton or football or some community workouts together with, you know, friends, sometimes yeah. if you, if you example, if you don't come, hey, why Dr. Jara never come for training for two weeks? Hey, call him. But nowadays it's all about, you know, social media postings and we actually living with a mask on, you know. So we, we tend to be, you know, showing that we are having a very luxurious life. Uh, we are smiling and we're happy. But, are we really happy? Uh, in social yeah, media, it's so much of layer of filter so that the mm. whole world knows that you're happy, but in fact, in fact, you're not. So you, you mentioned it, that, Dr. Very well. Yeah. And, oh, and also, Doctor, um, as we still in the numbers, of course, um, we, we are now given a lot of major priorities to our mental health 
and yeah. a lot of initiatives are happening at this point of time. But what are some common reasons that contribute to suicide or such a trend in Singapore? Okay. I think previously uh, we discussed about the level of academic stress and workplace uh, competition, trying to fight for promotion and things like that. I think the part about social pressure is also this aspect of comparison. I think you spoke about it just now, that uh, you will go online and you will see people living very fun, luxurious, comfortable lives. Yeah, yeah. And then you start to think of, hey, how come I am in such a terrible place? And it affects your self-esteem. I remember... A few years ago, I was seeing a young a young adult who reported being suicidal because she lost her social media account. And and wow. when we talked to her to find out actually what was going on, why why is that the case? And she spoke uh, something along the line that her whole uh, her self esteem depends on her social media. Social media. Yeah, and and, wow. and it was quite uh, frightening in that. I think what happened was that she was sort of trying to boost her number of followers, not in a mm-hmm. good manner. I think the company found out and they shut down her account. And mm-hmm. as a result, she actually wanted to take her own life. So we have got cases like this. I know, and then when I whenever I talk about suicide and mental health, I, I always give a caveat that I I live a very biased life. The examples that I give tend to be on the extreme. But if I see these extremes, then there must be many, many more minor cases that maybe don't surface yet or they haven't come to the severity that they need to see a psychiatrist. But it certainly exists. We have seen parents try having a difficult time taking devices away from the children. Mm-hmm. I wonder why is that the case, right? Uh, so, so that's one reason, social pressure. I think there is a lot of emphasis on, uh, there's a lot of attention paid on um, things like social isolation and loneliness. I think before the COVID pandemic, a lot of the studies have been done in the elderly living alone, Mm -hmm. for example. But during the pandemic, I think all of us went through a time where we were isolated. I, I think it wasn't that long ago in 2020 that we couldn't see our friends, we couldn't see our family. When we went out for meals, we had to count the number of people <laughs> so, so there was a time that I think we were lonely and, and I remember working at the emergency room at the time and people actually couldn't cope. They couldn't cope yeah. with the isolation. Previously, they told me that they would actually get out of the house whenever there was conflict at home. Imagine now you are at home, you're with your family, but you are lonely because your social connection is not with family members. <laughs> uh, I think the other thing which is a contributor, I, I it's really... so. The generation now, the society is really not quite, there's a lot of uncertainties if you think about it. Uh, We get affected by things around the world. I I know that I I recently learned this term called doom scrolling. I don't know whether you heard it. Every time you look at at the news, it's something bad. You read about war in Europe, you read about an invasion in the Middle East, you read about the response that people have, floods, a fog in another country, and it's all bad news, you see. And it certainly affects our psyche. And I, I suppose one final part is that even though we, I said that there's less stigma, there is more mental health literacy to encourage people to get help, I think stigma still remains. I think mm-hmm. that some people still have some misconception about getting treatment for mental illness. They're worried of having a record. They're worried that they can't find a job. They, they can't get into university or, or some other institute of higher learning right. if they declare that they have seen a psychiatrist before. So I'm glad that things are being done. I think MOM recently talked about how there is this workplace fairness laws that are going to come into place to prevent discrimination. I think all this helps, but that, that may be some of the reasons that I see. Yeah. Definitely, Doctor. I mean, um, I mean, these are the um, initiatives that, you know, what our local government is doing and, you know, like we have to approach for help. And also right. about uh, the people around us, our loved ones. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk that in a while. I mean, we are engaging with Dr. Jared, uh, psychiatrist, is an experienced psychiatrist and an expert in suicide prevention. So we were watching this. We are live in YouTube. 
LinkedIn and Facebook as well. So if you are watching this, please do share and like so that it can reach out to more people. And yeah, we back again with Doctor. So Doctor, we are also going into um, the sign and symptoms. Yeah. Um, I may not have a sleep for past five days because of a project that I'm working on. Um, yes. And um, I'm extremely under stress because my boss said, if you don't do it, you get fired. And um, I'm working my everything on, you know, without food, without drink. And um, within five days, I fall into a burnout. And burnout, can it lead to others, other spectrum like anxiety, depression? And and why am I asking that is because we, we need the sign and symptoms to identify. If, let's say if I got a colleague, I say, hey, why are you like that? He's not engaging with communications. He's just isolating. He looks sad. Eyes are watery. So how do we actually uh, look at our loved ones and say, that, okay, he needs help. We need help. Let's get it. Okay. Yeah, so the warning signs of suicide is actually pretty well documented. I will encourage everyone to, not everyone, people, the viewers to actually take a look at the Samaritans of Singapore website. I think they do talk a little bit about the warning signs of suicide. So usually it is about, well, we can divide it into three main parts. It's about verbal cues. Sometimes when people are on the verge of um, wanting to take their life, they may start talking about feeling very trapped, feeling very helpless. They may start talking of how they feel that they are having this unbearable pain and being a burden to their loved ones. Or they may even just directly talk about wanting to end their lives. So this is a verbal cue. It's important to take note of that. I think sometimes... I have seen family members, I've seen friends who would dismiss this and say, oh, yeah, you always talk about this, you also never do it. Those are terrible things to say. I think in this particular arena, when, when we do suicide risk assessment, we will always take the person seriously. We always err on the side of caution. So, so what they say is important. I think what you mentioned earlier about behavior changes is also important. Someone suddenly become very, very withdrawn, doesn't want to leave the house, uh, they may even have behaviors like searching the internet for painless way to die or how high must I jump and things like that. They may actually do that. They may even turn to taking alcohol or even drugs to cope. So behavior changes is one. You may see um, them having a lot of swings in their mood. They may be very, very sad or angry or, or telling you that they are hopeless. And then after that, they may feel quite normal. And I think what's important when we talk to a family is that when they are sensitive to um, the loved ones, they know that there are small changes in the behavior. How come you're suddenly not talking? How come you're not joining us for dinner? How come you don't want to go out when you always go out on weekend? And, and this should, should prompt the family members, friends, or other loved ones to really check in on the other person. Whenever I talk about warning signs of suicide, I will always give a warning, right? That the absence of warning sign does not mean that the person is not contemplating suicide. Um, because we also don't want family members, friends to be complacent. Oh, but my son, my daughter didn't show this, didn't talk about this, so they're okay. I, I think they're okay. But this not, may not be the case. If you think about young people, when they are teenagers, they may not tell parents anything. They, they may only want to talk to friends or maybe even talk to other adults. So parents sometimes tell us that they never noticed that anything was wrong. But yet, when we talk to the friends, the friends would then alert the family to say that uh, mm -hmm. John is writing about um, not wanting to live anymore on his social media. I, I, we are very worried. Can you do something? So we have seen that happening as well. So those are those are crucial parts. Of course, the other classical, classical I say, warning signs that people demonstrate sometimes is saying goodbye, uh, saying okay. thank you, uh, or posting on... I think there's some role to social media. They, they post on Facebook, they post on Instagram, some goodbye messages as well. And we actually pay attention to that. To that. Yeah. Right. And uh, doctor, I mean, um, we, we see more people working very long hours, right? Um, yes. Previously, I mean, we, I use it as a, me as an example. I mean, previously when I was in a corporate um we, we work long hours. We want to impress our bosses yeah. and our managers, right? Uh, because eventually we want to keep a job and we don't want to get fired and kind of stuff. I mean, probably they may not be very happy in where yeah. they are. Um, and then they go through and they push through and say, it's okay, things will change. And But, you know, things are not changing eventually. Um, so 
I'm sure corporates nowadays, you know, companies are making a lot of effort as well. They have a lot of health uh, segments and, you know, looking at the staff benefits as well. Um, yes. But do you think, doctor, that can be more can be done? Because, uh, you know, our, our, sometimes our work can be really a pressure, like working 12 hours a day and then coming back home with more responsibility with the family. You know, sometimes they feel that, oh, you know what, I can't spend so much of time um, and, and more longer hours away from the family and then little time, I mean, little time with the family and then weekends also they have to work. Is there something that can be done in corporate settings as well? Um, I think so. I think we have paid really quite a bit of attention to corporate mental health. I think previously there was always this view that it's really hard to do it. It's much easier to do it in a school system because it's, you actually have a captive audience. Everyone, is, okay, not everyone, most people are in school. But right. once they go into the workplace, it becomes quite tricky. So then the idea is to reach out to individual big employers and hopefully that will trickle down to the SMEs la, and to the mm -hmm. smaller so, so a few things that we hope that companies can do is really look at, to really appraise the mental health environment. I think we have got occupational health laws, we have got the ISOs, we have got processes, yep. we have got audits. Why not look at mental health policies of the company? Mm -hmm. We could look at mental health training for companies. We could look at whether the company would be amenable to things even like flexible work arrangement, a paid leave for people to get mental health support. I think mm -hmm. those are things which companies should have. Um, I think some first principle is that is there a lot of conflicts at work? Is there harassment? Is there bullying? Uh, are, are managers adequately supported? Are staff adequately supported? So these are what companies right. should do. And I think promoting a, a company where there's trust, there is psychological safety, is open communication. I think all these are crucial. And of course, we know that despite the best things that we can do, sometimes incidents still do happen. Uh, problems mm -hmm. may arise. So, so companies should have a crisis plan where they can do intervention to really prevent further mental health damages from happening. I think this is what companies can do. And there's really a lot of resources out there to guide companies. Um, I think recently, me and one of my colleagues, my classmate actually from medical school, we wrote, we wrote up something together. It's available at the Fullerton website, I think. It's really about what companies can do to uh, have a mentally healthy workplace. Uh, please take a look at it uh, if you are free. Yeah. Thank you, doctor. I mean, um, you're still into the um, a topic of... Um an open discussion about suicides which together with me is Dr. Jared Ng is an experienced psychiatrist and an expert in suicide prevention. So if you do have any questions, you can actually post over here. If not, you can actually do a private message and no name and no names will be mentioned here. Um, Doctor, we're also going to look at um, diagnosing. Um, yes. Is it true that everyone who attempts suicide has an underlying mental illness, just that or for some it's not diagnosed? Okay, um, I think this is one of the myths of um, suicide, right? There's a lot of myths out there. And this is one of them, that everyone who attempts suicide must be mentally ill. I must say that mental illness is a significant risk factor for suicidality, but not everyone who attempts suicide has a mental illness. A lot of times they have got acute stressors. I would say that many studies have suggested that perhaps even up to half of all suicides are impulsive in nature. Uh, what does that mean then? Is that uh, people would undergo a stress, a trigger, and for young people, for adults, for the elderly, the triggers are quite different. Uh, one of the more common reasons why people would attempt suicide, for example, is relationship issues, breakup, mm -hmm. betrayal, even things like infidelity. We have seen some of this as well. I think when a person is triggered, it overwhelms them and they can't cope. And they all, many of them reports having uh, undescribable, unbearable pain and that taking their life is a better way out than bearing through that pain. And they actually go through with it impulsively. So think about it, mental illness, depression, uh, some other uh, psychotic illnesses, they actually increase the level of impulsivity. So that's why mental illness is a risk factor for suicide, but not everybody has one. Certainly, I do think that there is a situation of under-diagnosis as well. Uh, my colleagues, my ex-colleagues in the Institute of Mental Health did a study a couple of years ago. This was before 
the COVID pandemic. So mm -hmm. I'm quite interested to see an update. It suggests that almost 80% of people with mental health distress are not seeking help. If you think about it, 80% is very high. And, and the duration of some illnesses uh, where they are not treated, for example, even OCD, is up to 11 years. Can you imagine a person from the time symptoms first appear to them trying to get help is a decade. Think of the suffering that the person went through. And we know that mental illness doesn't just affect the individual, it affects family members, it affects communities, it affects workplaces as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so suicide is really very complex. I, I used to give a series of lectures called Suicide is a Wicked Problem because it's complex issues, multiple factors. I have hardly seen any cases where there is just one trigger and one cause. It's usually multifactorial. Even things like alcohol use, drug use are implicated in suicide as well. So mental illness is one of the risk factors, but it is not the only thing that causes suicide. Right. You know, if, if um, mental illness can be detected earlier, so let's say yes. perhaps, um, is there a, a chance to prevent it or to becoming serious? Um, yes. How do we, how do we, I mean, how do you gauge or how do you diagnose it? if you can share that experience with us. Yeah, I, I do think that the earlier we pick up a mental health condition, uh, the better the chances of recovery, the better outcomes there are. Many, many scientific studies have suggested that um, while I'm not trying to equate mental illnesses with a condition like cancer, but people understand that better. If you pick up cancer at an early stage, it's much easier to treat. Whereas if you pick it up when it's already stage four spread everywhere, it's much harder. I would say that a similar analogy can have, can be the case for mental health conditions as well. If you pick it up early, you may not even need medication. You right. could use therapy to help the person. And sometimes it's not even, we need to send them for some super formal therapy. It's really problem solving. If you notice that someone is starting to slip into more and more symptoms, it's starting to right. affect their lives, reach out to them and you can help them. Sometimes they may just need very practical help, yeah, like settling the household, settling the kids and things like this. Um, a lot of times when we think about treatment for mental illness, we often think about taking medication and then with that, people will have this idea in their, in their mind that taking medication equals the person becomes like a zombie, very, very yeah, zombie, yeah. tired. I'm not themselves. I must say that psychiatric Medication, as with all medication, have got side effects. And that's why it's important to work very closely with your doctor and to really find the best balance that, that you balance the benefit of the medication with the side effect and we give a dose that is gives you the best benefit for the least side effect. So that's for medication. But mental health treatment also include counseling, also include therapy, different kinds of therapy. So right. they don't just need to see a psychiatrist, they could even see... Uh, a psychologist, a counsellor, and as, as you have seen in the newspaper over the last couple of weeks, um, they are training more and more general practitioners to be That's able true. to identify, treat, and manage uh, the more minor mental health conditions. I think that's important as well. And that reduces stigma, encourage people to seek help early. I think that's useful too. Great initiative, uh, Dr. Gerard Ng. We are engaging with uh, Dr. Gerard Ng. Um, he's an uh, experienced psychiatrist and an expert in suicide prevention. We are live in uh, Spotify, YouTube, LinkedIn. You can also listen to them anytime you want to. Or if you do have any questions that you want to engage Dr. Gerard Ng, please do ask us in the comment section. If you are quite uh, sensitive with that, you can also direct message me. No names will be mentioned here. Um, and also, if you want more information about Dr. Jared Ng, you can also look at connectionsmind.com. That is his website. You can go more. Uh, doctor, you also mentioned earlier um, that there's some articles there as well they can read up. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I've written a couple articles. And I think they published one this week where, where really I talk about uh, mental health in Singapore as well. Thank you, doctor. Um, so if you have any questions for Dr. Jarang, please do send it because I'm going to take that. I know I see some of the questions coming in. I'm definitely going to take that uh, in a while because I'm still engaging Dr. Jarang in some of these um, important questions that, you know, if we can shine more light into it. So doctor, mm -hmm. I mean, is it all right or safe for me to ask about societal thoughts in someone 
who I think might be depressed or I suspect is contemplating to suicides. Okay. Um, I think this is another myth of suicide. I think um, it is said that if you ask somebody about suicide, uh, when they don't have suicidal thought, you're actually planting the thought into their head and gives them an idea. I think we have found that that is not true. I think it's important to have an open conversation, an open dialogue um, with the person that you know is in some distress. And and I have got patients and family members tell me that they actually appreciate that because it gives them an opportunity to talk. Remember, we mentioned earlier on in this podcast that uh, suicide, mental illness, mental health, all these are very stigmatizing topic and people may find it difficult to talk to you about it, right? So, so I think it is important to ask about it if you are concerned. If you, we just now we spoke about all the verbal signs, the, the behavior changes, uh, the last acts, the saying goodbye. If you find that someone is doing that, you, you could just ask sensitively and offer really a listening ear. It is important to be non-judgmental and not brush the person aside. I think a lot of times, sometimes we are always very eager to help. But then yeah. we may end up saying something that, oh, yeah, this is just a small problem, don't worry. Don't that that is very invalidating. And I think sometimes I think this happens as well. That when somebody talks to you and you want to provide, you want to ask the person, you end up talking about yourself and suddenly the, the other person becomes the listener. Not right. So so if you approach a person because you sense that they are not doing well, they are in distress, I think have an open conversation, ask them what they need. Do they need a listening ear? Do they need a problem solver? And then accompany them, sit with them, don't rush. Um, recommend that they seek help if you feel that you are, they are, you are not equipped to handle it. Um, there are cause, not causes, they are got lessons that you could apply for. I know that the Samaritans of Singapore run this uh, workshop called Be a Samaritan, where they teach you about active listening skill, how to pick up signs and symptoms of suicidality, right. where to link up for help. I think those are very, very useful tools that all of us um, should have. Um, I think finally, if if you sense that you are not able to cope anymore, you can always point them to resources. SOS runs a number. IMH has a helpline. And in fact, even for young persons, they, they also have this thing called uh, Tinker Friends that the young people can go and you just need to Google helplines in Singapore. You really find this entire page about um, different places that you can go to, you can call for help. So I think this is important. Right, doctor. So these are the numbers that the uh, doctor has mentioned. Yeah, uh, yeah. SOS, online, and Institute of Mental Health at Blind. And um, these numbers are there. So you can actually um, seek them out if you think that you need help or if your loved ones need help as well. Um, yes, I do see more questions that's coming up. I'm definitely going to take that. Um, doctor, yes. I mean, of course, we we mentioned, uh, you mentioned about, you know, how we can actually access, uh, assess someone who has these uh, few signs and symptoms and then mm. especially our loved ones suddenly, uh, you know, my uncle is becoming so quiet, you know, he's usually very happy and chippy, jumping around. Yes. Suddenly he's not. And, and, you know, these are the signs and symptoms. But um, you also mentioned that, you know, we can definitely can, you know, uh, help someone rather than becoming an expert ourselves and then start, you know, um, suggesting things to them and without, uh, with the proper guidance. Um, but, you know, if we tell a person who is contemplating and signs and symptoms is there, um, you know, to seek uh, a professional, especially a psychologist or psychiatrist, probably they won't agree. Um, in that kind of situation, um, that person may fall into a helpless stage. It's like, oh, what can I do? And every second and every minute and every hour is priceless. Um, yes. So in that situation, emergency situation, what they can do, they may be like confused, like what am I supposed to do now? I can't wait until tomorrow. Um, what will your uh, expertise on this, doctor? Okay, I think some people may think that I'm going to be quite harsh in saying that, but I just feel that at the end of the day, right, it's about saving a life. So if you really feel very strongly that the person has got increased risk, you have to act. It may involve you informing the family members. It may involve you for, uh, informing other loved ones, calling a hotline on their behalf, calling IMH hotline on their behalf, bring a few friends and accompany him to the hospital for assessment. And if really you feel that the person, for example, is you know that something is wrong, they are going to do something drastic, you may even call the police. 
Why yeah. do I say this is important? Because remember I mentioned just now that almost half of suicide uh, is impulsive. There have been many studies done. In fact, there was a recent study where they really look at the time that passes from a person making a decision to actually doing the action. Do you want to have a guess how, how many, what is the time usually? Sorry, are we looking at number of hours or number of days so I can make a, a estimation? Okay, so I already know your answer because you are looking at hours and days. Yeah. It's actually minutes. Minutes? It's minutes. Yeah. Almost slightly more than one third of them, their decision, the time between their decision to die and their actual attempt is five minutes. Wow. And, and for almost three quarters of them, three in four is three hours. This is the time that we have and, and we cannot lose a, a person to that. And if you need to sit there and accompany this person until more help comes along, do it. Because you never know what life you're going to save. Mm-hmm. I, I remember this story. Actually, I can't remember the name of the person, but there was this story which I thought was remarkable. There was this MRT station master many years ago. He saw someone sitting at the staircase near the MRT station looking distressed. He actually bothered to sit down beside the person and talk to her, you know, and it turns out that she was actually thinking of killing herself on that day. And he saved her life. You see, the thing is that you don't know how many lives you will save by just sitting down, bothering and talking to somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so it's important. And, and that's why if you, if you know that your loved one, your friends, your family member is at high risk, I think sit with them, uh, encourage them. Um, if you feel that the risk is really too high, then tell somebody about it. Don't carry that alone because if something do happen, mm-hmm. you would have a lot of difficulties coping with it. I know sometimes you are trapped, right? I, I've seen many patients come to me and, and tell me that, or maybe family members, um, they will say that, oh, but I promised him that I wouldn't tell anyone. Yep. Right? It happens. And then you you get conflicted. Oh no, I know that. I, know, I keep using the name John, right? But it's a very common name. I know that John wants to take his life uh, but he told he made me promise not to tell anyone, so I should not tell anyone. But I always feel that when it comes to things that, about life and death, you break confidentiality because you are acting in his best interest. You want to save a life. If John decides to be angry with you, or, or if John decides to be angry with me, I'm willing to take that because I would want to save him first and I could mend mm-hmm. the relationship later on. Yeah, so this is important. Thank you, doctor. Thank you for the advice. We are now currently engaged with uh, Dr. Jaren. He's an experienced psychiatrist and an expert in suicide prevention. And uh, we are live in um, YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook. You can also listen to us in Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We are in a discussion of today's topic is an open discussion about suicide. So I'm going to take the uh, two questions that um, we have sent in. Uh, Thank you, Radhika Satya. How do we help the elderly who are experiencing depression and prolonged sadness to the point they keep talking about ending their life? Doctor. Okay, I think that's a fantastic question because I think a lot of times we do focus on young people, right? Like I said, half of all suicides yeah. uh, people age uh, 49 and below, but we, we, we know that there's this other half that is 49 and above. I'm not saying 49 and above are elderly. I'm saying that mm-hmm. that's the other half, right? But um, if they're experiencing dep- depression, I assume that you mean it is uh, clinical depression. I think they need to be treated. I think depression, even in an elderly, is a very treatable condition. We need to be very mindful that elderly faces a very distinct stressor and trigger, which maybe someone younger may not feel. For example, having an illness. I always uh, know that having an illness that is chronic, that is terminal, that is disabling and painful and all painful, I think these are big risk factors for an elderly. I, I always remember when I was a young psychiatric trainee, one of the esteemed professor, Professor Kwa, always spoke about one question when you ask the elderly if the, is that, do they live alone? If they live alone, your antenna should come up. There, this is a suicide risk. So isolation and loneliness is a big factor. You should pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. The other one is grief. I think a lot of times uh, whenever I see um, an elderly person who lost his partner, 
to me, that is high risk, at least for the next one to two years. Right. They may want to join the other party because imagine if you live with your wife or your husband for the last 50, 60 years of life and suddenly, right, um, they pass us on. I think there is a sense of emptiness and loneliness and a person may feel right. that they have no reason uh, to continue living. Of course, the other thing which we, we should all take note of is elder abuse as well. I think that happens, unfortunately. And recent, we also, recently, we also see a lot of articles where the elderly are scammed uh, of their life savings. And True. imagine you, you, you sacrifice your entire life, you build up a family, you save money, and after that, you lose thousands or tens of thousands of dollars to a scammer and you might feel that there's nothing to live for anymore. So it is the same thing. If you know an elderly who is talking about ending their life, just because they're old doesn't mean that they're not serious. I think you should still reach out to them as what we discussed earlier in the podcast and to be with them and to bring them for help. If they are suffering from depression, then it is possible to treat them. We can treat the depression with medication, with therapy as well. Yeah. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you, Radhika, for the uh, questions and I hope that that's been uh, um, answered to you. Um, Doctor, I got a very interesting um, question, um, particularly okay. by um, a person, right? Um, say, Vanan, if someone is depressed mm -hmm. and has suicidal thoughts, will you encourage to visit a psychiatrist as a first step? Um, I think it really depends Depends. I think there is no problem visiting a psychiatrist. I would want to say that I, I would think that when it comes to seeking help, there should be a no wrong door. Uh, just, just because uh, I'm a psychiatrist doesn't mean I can't refer to somebody else. If, for example, a person comes to see me, as what the, 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 the person asking the question said, that they are depressed, they are suicidal, they see me. If I feel that this case uh, just needs uh, psychological treatment, then mm -hmm. I'll refer accordingly. If we know that this is a patient who needs, for example, grief counselling, then we refer to a grief counsellor. If the person, this person needs help to sort out some finances, maybe they are in debts, maybe they are on the verge of bankruptcy, mm -hmm. we may refer them to a credit counselling agency to really talk to them about it. So we do want to problem solve for them as well. Certainly, if we think that the person will benefit from taking medication, then we will have that discussion with the person. But as, as well, I tell all my patients, medication is not the be-all and all of treatment. A lot of times, there's also life stressors that the person needs to handle. Imagine if you are depressed because um, you owe a lot of money or you recently got retrenched. Taking medication may not necessarily get you your job back. Taking medication will not suddenly put in tens of thousands of dollars to your bank account. But taking medication may put you in a better frame of mind where you can then work on your problems. I think the, the difficulties that patients have when we are all depressed, sometimes we get irrational, we get very negative, we get very withdrawn, we don't have energy to, to do things, to work on our issues. So treating depression is helpful in that sense. But... No wrong door. I would want to believe that if you end up seeing a GP, if you end up seeing a psychologist and they feel that you need to see a specialist, then they will refer to a specialist and vice versa. Yeah. Thank you, Doctor. And of course, uh, to all the viewers, we are currently engaged with Dr. Jared Ng, a psychiatrist. Um, if you do have any questions, you can actually um, engage Dr. Jared Ng. And of course, if you um, want to message, um, this is the number, 98525309. Um, definitely names will not be mentioned. And all these are P and C. Uh, Doctor, I got a very interesting question that just came in as well. And I know uh, there's a few more questions that people have sent through uh, Facebook and LinkedIn as well, which we would definitely take in because we have about 10 more minutes. So if you do have a particular questions, please engage us. Um, Doctor, I feel... Okay. Uh, Doctor, I feel... Most of the time, sad. I tear when I drive. I tear when I watch a movie. I tear when I'm having my food, especially. What is the wrong with me, doctor? <laughs> I mean, you know, I know she's um, uh, expressing um, crying. So I think uh question is she's crying a lot. Okay. Yeah. So so when when I hear that, of course, as a psychiatrist, I'm concerned. 
I think one reason is that uh, increased tearfulness. To me, it could be a symptom, but certainly um, we do not just diagnose depression because a person is crying a lot. We also need to explore whether there are other symptoms, for example, feelings of sadness that last for more than two weeks, whether is it uh, sad all the time, whether they feel very unhappy, whether they have a lack of interest in things. We Sometimes we also ask about energy, appetite, sleep. We look at all this. With the patient consent, sometimes we also want to speak to a loved one, someone who live, who knows the patient to get another side of the story because all of us have got blind spots. Um, we certainly want to ask about triggers and stressors and certainly we will ask about whether the person has got thoughts of suicide. So increased tearfulness to me is already a clue. I would certainly need to do a more thorough assessment mm -hmm. different whether there's other different symptoms. Sometimes we may be surprised. Maybe the increased tearfulness is not due to depression, but it's due to very severe anxiety. That can also happen as well. And then we need to change our approach, our treatment accordingly. So taking a good history, finding out more about the situation, the stressor, the triggers, how long it has been, all this will really help us uh, to, thank to you. understand and to treat better. Yeah. Thank you for that uh, answer, Doc. And thank you, viewer, for that particular question. Thank you so much. Uh, the, the next one I'm going to take in from Facebook itself. Uh, his name is Ashokan Ramakrishna. Do you define ADHD and autism as the mental illness? And are those with ADHD and autism more likely to lean towards suicidal intentions? Um, I think it depends on where you read it. But certainly, uh, those with ADHD and autism would see a psychiatrist. So I don't know whether you would then consider that as a mental illness. But if you want to be strict about it, we call those neurodevelopmental disorders. Um, why do they see a psychiatrist? Of course, it's to treat the core condition of ADHD or autism. But we also know that those two conditions, they cause quite a bit of comorbidities, meaning that it is increased risk of developing depression, developing uh, anxiety, developing even things like OCD, or they also even have a higher risk of developing a more serious mental condition like schizophrenia, right? I think the other part of the question, can you flash it again? Yeah, sure. Second? Um, can we have that questions uh, coming up again, please? Thank you. Yeah. Are those with ADHD more likely to lean towards? As I mentioned, one of the big contributor, one of the big risk factors for suicidality is impulsivity. And if you think about ADHD, it is characterized by increased impulsiveness. So yes, there is an increased impulsiveness, but not just that. As I said earlier, patients with ADHD are also at increased risk of having depression, anxiety, and other type of mental illness. And, and all this then points, increase the risk of suicide ideation. So it is possible as well. Yeah. Thank you, uh, Shokan, for that question. I hope that has been answered as well. Um, Doctor, I mean, of course, um, you know, especially for young uh, kids, uh, those yes. in the primary school, secondary schools, you know, you know, sometimes they get feel stressed and yes. very, uh, very agitated, you know, this uh, young blood. Sometimes, um, you know, out of anger, um, they yeah. want to show some pain, so they cut themselves. Yes. Do parents, do parents should be concerned um, about this self-arm especially on the wrist. don't know why, but this is happening. Um, so what will your advice be to the parents? What are the things that they should look for? Okay. Uh, Self-harm is definitely a concern because sometimes they indicate that the person is in a lot of distress to have to resort to cutting themselves. There is a function to the self-harm. I think many youth, even adults, have said that sometimes when they cut themselves, they feel that they are in control. Whereas they can't control any other aspects of their life, but they can mm -hmm. control the pain they inflict on themselves. Sometimes we have patients saying that they go, they, they are in so much emotional pain that they actually feel numb and they rather feel physical pain than feel nothing at all. And therefore they cut themselves. And this is another reason. Another function which some patients tell us is that when they cut themselves, they feel a certain relief of their stress. And actually it is saving them. It is it is anti-suicide, self-harm as an anti-suicide mechanism mm -hmm. because when they cut, they don't feel like killing themselves. The difficulty is that a lot of these uh, individuals who hurt themselves also present with suicidal thoughts. And when they cut themselves, sometimes it's difficult for the layperson to decide, is this something more serious or is this just a way of ventilating or coping with their stress? So therefore, an interview 
uh, psychiatric assessment would be quite important. Why then would self-harm be important to a psychiatrist is that it, it, it is a risk factor for subsequent suicidal behaviours. Right. We do know that a person with a history of self-harm, they do have an increased suicide risk as they become an adult. So these are things which we want to pick up and treat early as what we discussed earlier in the podcast. Thank you, Doctor. I mean, uh, to be very honest, we have uh, reached 55 minutes into the podcast. It seems like we just started five minutes ago, um, spending uh, almost an hour with me in Kopi with Vance, despite your busy schedule and a long day for you. Thank you so much. Um, Doctor, I mean, you know, this is just my question, all right? Now we are going to talk a little bit things on the lighter side, no more serious stuff, huh? Do you think we should change the word psychiatrist to something? You know why? You know why I'm saying that, doctor. I mean, with due respect, uh, people go and see GP when they really got a cough. No issue, right? Nobody going to put any stigma or whatever. But why are they still afraid of psychologists, or counselors, and therapists, and especially psychiatrists? They get very worried and they don't want to go. How can we change that and 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 tell people that hey, it's fine if you think that you know if you need help, please approach. Right. Um, I think we have done that on a systems level. I don't know. I don't know how you are, Vance, but I remember there was a point in time where IMH was called Ubridge Hospital. And yes, then, I and remember then, uh, that. Now. Yes. Yeah, and then the hospital, the, the name Ubridge Hospital, got associated with so much stigma that they decided to change it to Institute of Mental Health. And now the entire compound is called Bangkok Green Medical Park. So right. they changed the name again. So right. really changing the name. Uh, helps to some extent. I'm sure if you change the psychiatrist's name to something, maybe it will help to some extent. But maybe what is more important then is to educate, is to increase mental health literacy, yeah. uh, is to reduce stigma. And and psychiatrists really, we are just like a surgeon, just like ophthalmologist, mm -hmm. just like uh, ENT professional, uh, ENT surgeon. Mm -hmm. So so it's just a medical specialty, and there should not be any shame or stigma attached to seeing a psychiatrist and one thing sometimes when i see uh patients is that i tell them that oh i'm just a i'm just like any other doctor i will do an assessment i'll take a i'll do an examination yeah and i'm just like anyone else and and i just put them at ease to talk to me of course some of them have i think sometimes they may still have this idea that i can read minds i wish i could but well, okay that's a psychic it's not yeah. a psychiatrist. With, with the crystal ball, do you have the crystal ball apart from the stethoscope? Oh, no, 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 no. I, I once, once I thought about having a lava lamp in my clinic, but I decided oh, right. that that's two Austin Powers. Yeah, right. so, so probably not. Uh, sometimes people ask, what's the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist? A psychiatrist mm -hmm. is a medical doctor. Uh, we also do medical evaluation to make sure that the symptoms are not part of a physical health condition. Mm -hmm. We have got patients who come and see us presenting with what sounds like depression or anxiety turns out to be a medical condition. I have seen patients with brain tumor with thyroid condition uh, presenting with uh, mental health issues. Right. So, so it's important that then we sort it out as well. You know, you know, doctor, I mean, this is my personal opinion. I mean, doing the health podcast for the past three years um, with Kopi events, I really feel that, you know, um, because everybody go for a medical evaluation every six months just to see that, you know, hey, my HbA1c is in the perfect condition. My blood pressure is in stage one. You know, my cholesterol level is good. But mental health, mental wellness, uh, mental health, there isn't any uh, pretty much more like a evaluation. So probably every six months. I don't know. This is just my suggestion, probably, you know. I'm sure uh -huh. Healthy AG is coming up with a great initiative right now. But, you know, just to get ourselves evaluated, you know, to check my stress level, my burnout, or whether is it something, you know, um, am I developing something, you know, it, it is yeah. good to approach for help. I think then the stigma with psychiatrists and psychologists and therapists, I think it will be just become like, hey, we are here for help. Yeah, we are but, ready to yeah but Vance, I'll, I'll take that and I'll one-up you and say that we shouldn't just do it every six months. We should do it daily. This wow. shouldn't be a six-month thing. It should be every day. We should just practice self-care. We should just check in on not just ourselves, you know, but all right. the people around us. Like I said earlier, the, the station master, you never know whose life you are going to save, right. whose life you are going to impact. 
the difficulty with doing a mental health check-in or a screening every six months is that there is so many things that can happen during that six months. It can be good things. It can be bad okay. things okay. as well. So daily check-ins, daily practice of self-care, be kind to yourself, be compassionate to other people, to yourself as well. I think all these are crucial uh, to our mental well-being. Thank you, Dr. Jared Ang. I think, uh, Doctor, you have... Um... I mean, covered all the part of uh, the whole uh, segment here and also engaging our our viewers. And also our viewers, I know this topic can be a bit taboo. I mean, initially, uh, when we deciding a topic, you know, we were talking about, hey, we should yeah. talk about this. And um, I think it is it's changing, right? Even it is in the healthier SG, like what our Minister of Health, Ong In Khan, have said that. Um, so if you do want to engage Dr. Jarrett Hung, this is his uh, website. You can actually look up. He has some great articles in it, which I have yet to go in, Doctor. I will definitely go in and read as well. Um, thank you for your time. Doctor, before we end this podcast, is there something that you want to tell our viewers, um, your expertise or your tip of the iceberg, whatever you want to tell, Doctor? No, I'll just be uh, I'll just be a broken record and say that at the end of the day, it's really about kindness to ourselves and to other people. And if we are doing that, kindness, actually, I think it goes a long way to improving all our mental health. Thank you, Dr. Jaradang. I mean, um, it's my great uh, pleasure and gratitude to you for joining me at Kopi Events on this topic of uh, open discussion with suicide. Thank you, Dr. Jaradang. We will catch yeah. up real soon. Thank you. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you. So that was a great, uh, I mean, you'll be hearing me. I'm always using the word great, great, great. Another exciting top podcast. But uh, I mean, I definitely enjoy this, right? It's been on for three years. And um, it just seems like just last week I've started this. But I really enjoyed and enjoy like professionals like Dr. Jared Ng and many, many other professionals, um, doctors, professors, surgeons who came into uh copy events to share and you know to create this awareness and mental health topic is one of my favorite topic because i really feel that oh we do have another question oh but i will take that later but you know i really feel that this um we, we need to talk about it right um like dr jared Ng has mentioned that uh one of the stories that you know a station master will, will sit down and talk to a girl and manage to save her you know sometimes we are we are so busy with our own work and we are just with this narrow-minded, right? Just like a tunnel vision. We're just going in that vision and we're not worried about who is on the left, who is on the right. You know, we just don't, you know, it's all about us. So sometimes we can be a bit self-centered, but you know, hey, we are living live only once. So if you do it right, I think it's a fabulous thing that you do for your entire life and for the entire population. So let's be more kind um, in my... In my daily uh, social media posts, I always talk about loving yourself is very important. You know, taking care of yourself is very important. Um, I always ask a lot of people, right, uh, which I know, um, when is the last and the first time do you went and watch a movie alone? Went for your dinner alone? It's not that you're being lonely, but sometimes you're just dating yourself. How excited is that, right? You feel good, you know, you're going out with your own self-treating and buying stuff for yourself. Or even if you're just doing some window shopping, you know, you're spending good quality time for yourself. Your body will appreciate. Your mind will appreciate. Your entire um, system will appreciate. So let's turn inwards, my magical words, and a great... Um, appreciation and a great thanks to Dr. Jared Ang, um, experienced psychiatrist and an expert in suicide prevention. And today we talked about an open discussion about suicides. You are locked in with Kopi Advance. And this is your host. I'll be coming up with another, you see, I just told you, right? Another exciting topic with Vance at Kopi Advance. Till then, adios, amigo. And um, some of the... Uh, Helpline will be posted in our social media just in case if you need them or if your loved one needs them or if you notice that someone needs them, please. Let's all live together and grow together. This is events. I'll catch you soon. Adios, amigos.